Jesus satisfies. Oh, doesn't he? Any amens? Anybody? Come on. Okay, something like that. Um, my name's Doug. I am one of the pastors for our church. Good morning to see, uh, good to see all of your beautiful faces. Uh, this morning, we are finishing up the book of Acts, okay? Anybody remember what chapter Chris preached last week? 22. Anybody know how many chapters are in the book of Acts? 28, okay? We got a lot of work to do, so just buckle up. We're going to go fast. We're going to fly through and see what God has to say to us. I'd like to start this way this morning with a question, okay? And normally when a preacher asks a question from the stage, it's like rhetorical. You stay quiet, right? But this morning, I want you to actually shout out the answer, okay? If you got an answer, you think you know the answer, anything like that, go ahead and just shout it back to me, okay? Here's the question. What is the mission of City Light Church? Go for it. Anybody? Praise God. Praise God. Awesome. What else? Spread the gospel. Spread the gospel. Huh? And worship. Okay. Anything else? Make disciples. There's something over here that I'm sure was awesome. Okay. Yeah, love each other. Okay, let me just boil it down. I'm going to give you the official written down. It's in all our publications on the website, all that stuff. The official mission of City Light Church. You ready? The mission of City Light Church is to multiply disciples and churches. We want to multiply disciples and churches, not just add, not just increase, but we want to see these disciples and these churches like literally just multiplying, spinning on out. We want to multiply disciples of Jesus, not just nice people, not just Sunday morning church attenders, but people who are learning and obeying all that Jesus taught, people who are experiencing life transformation with Jesus and in community, disciples. And we want to multiply churches, not just like services, not just cool big gatherings and old warehouses. We want to multiply churches. Families of God that are united together on his mission, led by qualified leaders preaching the gospel, and those churches themselves multiplying disciples and churches. That is our mission. It is our mission. It's not just my mission or the elder's mission or the staff's job. That is, it's your mission too. It's your city group's mission. That is our shared mission, to multiply disciples, and churches. But it's not like we're original with that. We didn't like dream that up and like come up with it. Instead, we just totally ripped it from what we see in the book of Acts. And we especially see that in the apostle Paul. Paul was hungry to make a bunch of disciples, multiply them, spread them out all over the place, and get churches planted. This was Paul's heartthrob. It was his passion, right? He had put all his chips in, liquidated his assets, and built all of his plans around multiplied disciples and churches. It's a grand, huge mission. It it is life-encompassing purpose, but it begs this question, how? How does Paul multiply disciples and churches? I mean, does he write a book and get on the New York Times bestseller list and then like go on a preaching tour and get famous? Or maybe like Jesus, he just picks 12 guys and focuses all his attention on them and heals a few people. How does Paul do that? Same question for us as a church. See, like, how do we 
multiply disciples in churches. Every grand mission begs the question, how? And so it is in your life too. Most likely in your life, there's like some sort of ambition. You have a goal for your life, some sense of mission. And the question is, how do you accomplish that? How do you do that? Maybe you want to be a bodybuilder like me. That's not funny. Okay, whatever. How do you do that? Someone can help me. Okay. Um, Or maybe you want to be a doctor or you want to start your own business or be an inner city school teacher. Maybe you want to get married or go on overseas missions with Jesus. Whatever it is, every grand mission begs the question, how? How do you do that? The last six chapters in the book of Acts, chapters 23 through 28 that we're going to cover... Answer that question of how for Paul's grand mission, okay? It's this nail-biting, like nerve-wracking, cliff-hanging narrative for six chapters. God had given Paul a clear mission, multiply disciples in churches. Now we're going to read the story of exactly how Paul was going to do that, okay? So the next few minutes are going to be story. Stick with me. I promise we're going to go somewhere with this story. We're going to start in Acts chapter 23. If you have your Bibles, go there. Acts 23, and we're going to look at verse 11. Paul gets his specific how, his role to play, while he's in prison. Acts 23, 11. The following night. Now, that night was following the day when Paul had been beaten by a bunch of Jewish zealots. And then he had been rescued by some Roman officials, dragged in front of a court of sorts, having to give his defense, make his case. And they're like, ah, no, nah, I put him right back in prison, okay? He had literally nearly been um, tortured. And they're like, no, just put him back in prison. So the following night after that bad day, this happens. The Lord stood by him and said, take courage. Don't you know that Paul needed that in that time? The Lord, Jesus Christ himself, personally visited Paul in his prison cell. He just walked right in, sat down, and spent some time with Paul. Can you just imagine the courage that would have welled up in Paul from being with Jesus? The the supernatural power that would be infused into him from seeing Jesus afresh. The boldness that would come upon him just by Jesus showing up. So Jesus shows up, and he says, take courage, and then it continues. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. That's the how, okay? That is the the strategy, the the practicals of the plan. Here's the grand mission. Here's how you're going to do it, Paul. You're going to Rome. And I think that at that moment, even while he was still in prison, when God told Paul he was going to Rome, I think Paul threw a party in that prison. Yes! Woo-hoo! Right? He might be in prison that night, but pretty soon he was going to be out and on his way to Rome. This was Paul's dream come true. He was from Rome. He was a Roman citizen, and he wanted like Rome to be the base of his operations for the last chapter of his life. And Jesus just showed up and said, hey, You are going to Rome. He's jumping for joy. Paul is excited. This is going to be great. Just a year before this, Paul had written a letter to a bunch of Christians who were in Rome. And in that letter, in Romans 15, he said, I have longed, longed for many years to come to you. 
Paul wanted to get to Rome. He saw Rome as like the gateway, kind of the the entry point to the ends of the earth. He would go to Rome, spend some time with the Christians there, and then springboard out of there to Spain, the ends of the earth. That was as far as you could go at that point in history. So Rome was fun. Rome was big. Rome was strategic. Rome was home, and Jesus just told Paul he's going to Rome. It'd be like you're stuck in prison, but you get the news that, hey, you just won a dream vacation to your dream destination as soon as you get out of prison. Whoa, my notes got out of order, okay? So that's what's happening. Jesus says you're going to Rome. And the story continues, and you would expect by this point in time in the book of Acts, Paul's probably expecting, too, that like the next morning there's going to be this big earthquake, the ground is going to shake, Paul's going to walk out of prison scot-free, and then God's going to like teleport him like a Star Trek character over to Rome, and he's going to be drinking sweet red wine and organizing prayer meetings in Rome in no time, right? I mean, that's what Paul would have expected. I mean, God can do that. And God had been doing that. Just a few chapters earlier, God let an earthquake set Paul free from prison. So it's happened before. And a few chapters before that, God like teleported. I mean, straight up, beam me up, Scotty. Took this dude named Philip and put him in Africa to lead an Ethiopian to Christ. Teleported him back. So, I mean, God can do that sort of stuff. In fact, in the years right before this, God had been doing that stuff a lot. So Paul's going awesome. I just need my miracle. I mean, let's go ahead and do this, God. It's easy cheesy for you. But have you ever been there? Have you ever felt like that? Maybe you're in a tight spot right now, but like God drops down on you and you you feel like he's giving you a glimpse of the next chapter. He's calling you into something and you're excited about it. He helps you see your gifts and your skills. He tells you what is coming next. And so you, you start dreaming. Oh, okay, it can be like this. God's calling me to this. I mean, once I graduate, then I can do this. Or once I get out of this job, I'll step into this job. It's going to be better. It's going to be awesome. All that sort of stuff. But for Paul, it didn't get better. Paul's miracle never came. In fact, for Paul, it got worse. The Jewish zealots, those guys who were trying to kill him, they doubled up their efforts. They went into a sworn pact with one another that they would not eat any food until they had murdered Paul. It got worse. Paul was still stuck in prison and no earthquake came. Paul had to be led by a heavy guard, heavy Roman guard, just to protect him from all those Jewish zealots, 60 miles away to a place called Caesarea, and he had to make his case, give his defense, in front of a Roman official named Felix. Felix starts listening, and just ignores Paul, essentially tries to use Paul to get some money out of the deal, and then just sends Paul down into a dungeon prison cell for two whole years. Just ignores him. Puts him in prison for two whole years. And at this point in the book of Acts, Paul had been the lead mover and shaker in the early church for years. He had traveled around, raised up leaders, made disciples, multiplied churches. I mean, Paul was famous and respected. He was influential and revered. His pace of life was fast and fun and fruitful. I mean, stuff was happening in Paul's life. And now he's mistreated. He's ignored, he's forgotten, diminished to a dungeon cell for two whole years right after God told him he was going to his dream of Rome. How disappointing. 
Have you ever felt like that? God gives you this detailed, exciting vision for your life, only for that to be immediately followed by suffering. For some of you, this is very real. You're there right now. You have God-given, God-honoring desires for your life. And you feel like Jesus even gave you like some sense of how this is going to play out. But now your life is just a holding pattern marked by suffering. You didn't get accepted into that program. You didn't get the job that you thought you deserved. You weren't invited into leadership. Or maybe that girl broke up with you after a season of healthy relationship right before you were going to propose. Or maybe your spouse died way too early, long before it was their time. So now you're stuck. You're alone. You're saying, but, but God, you, you said so. You said this was going to happen, but now I'm stuck here, forgotten, bored, unseen. Have you been there? And for Paul, this downward spiral that he was in wasn't even over yet. It got worse. After two years, Felix moves out of office and another Roman dude named Festus moves into office, which he just had a really unfortunate name. Can we say that? Could you imagine junior high with the name Festus? Rough, rough go, right? Festus moves in and he does the same thing with Paul. Okay, Paul, Come make your case to me again. Let's see. Paul starts talking. The fest's like, ah, nope, mm -mm, not buying it. Paul's done nothing wrong, nothing illegal. Festus won't listen to him either. But there's this one little glimmer of hope when Paul presents to Festus. He says, this is Acts 25. Paul says, I appeal to Caesar. And in Acts 25, 12, Festus responds. He says, to Caesar you have appealed. To Caesar you shall go. And Caesar is in... Rome, right? So Paul's like, yes, finally, let's do this thing, okay? So after that, Paul has to share his story yet once more, just because Festus is kind of a wimp, and he has this guy named King Agrippa to hear it also, kind of that sort of thing. So Paul shares his case one more time, and then he gets chained to a Roman guard, hops on a boat, and they set sail for Rome. And at first, the journey is safe, but it's like so slow. I mean, just read Acts chapter 27 and just like get a sense of like, oh, you're trudging through mud, even just trying to read this, much less be on the boat. The wind is against them. Everything takes longer and is more difficult than it's supposed to be. They have to hug up against the coast. So it's just dragging on and on. Paul's probably sitting there marking days on his calendar, wondering, will I ever get anywhere, much less Rome. Days turn into weeks, and weeks turn into months and months sitting on this boat. Then, after all that, hell breaks loose on them. Literally, I mean, it is terrible. After all the delays, all the detours, then all of a sudden a storm comes upon them in their boat. And for two weeks, they are tossed and turned with crashing waves coming over them. It's terrible. In Acts 27, 20, it says this, at one point, neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest. In other words, a huge storm, okay? A huge storm just set upon them for a long time. It stayed with them. They couldn't get out of it. They couldn't get away from it. And all hope 
of our being saved was at last abandoned. So in the midst of the storm, they couldn't eat. They couldn't sleep. They were chucking stuff overboard as fast as they could. They even thought about chucking all the prisoners overboard. I mean, this is a boat full of prisoners. So who knows at any moment who might pull a knife or get violent. It could get bad. Hours drag into days that drag into two whole weeks of no sun, no stars, no light, no sense of where they are, no idea what is going on. They're all starved. They all can't sleep. It's terrible for two weeks in the storm. And at this point, if I'm Paul, I'm just ticked off at God. I I literally think I would just quit. I'm done. It's one thing to be stuck in a prison cell by yourself. It's a whole other thing to be on a boat with a bunch of murderers and thieves and thugs having to endure the lightning and thunder and the pummeling rain and the crashing waves. I think if I was Paul, I would just quit right then, throw in the towel and give up on God's silly, false promise of ever getting to Rome. That wasn't God. That was just the blood loss from the beating I had to endure in Jerusalem. That was just a hallucination. What was I thinking? I think if I was there, I would just bunker down and wait for death because I knew it would be coming. But it's in this moment, in Acts 27, that God chooses once again to visit Paul. God shows up this time through an angel. So an angel comes to him at the tail end of the storm in the middle of the night, and the angel says, hey, Paul, I haven't forgotten the grand mission, okay? That's the grand mission, multiply disciples and churches. This is the how. You will get to Rome. I promise, Paul, you're not going to die. You're going to get there. In fact, Paul, everybody on this ship is going to survive. So Paul gets this word from God, and he's like encouraged, empowered, enlivened, and he stands up in the midst of the storm and says, Hey, everybody, listen. An angel just showed up and told me we're all going to survive, and I have faith in God that he will do exactly as he told me. And sure enough, everyone survives. Everyone. They end up shipwrecking right off the coast of a little island called Malta. And they have to spend the winter in Malta because it's cold and dark and all that sort of stuff. It's a bunch of weird tribal people. Paul gets bit by a viper while he's there and then goes on to heal a bunch of people in the name of Jesus. Okay? After the long winter, long story short, they get on another boat, eventually get to Italy, and eventually... Acts 28, 14 happens. It's, it's got to be the understatement of the whole story. Acts 28, 14. And so we came to Rome. <laughs> and so we came to Rome through an arrest, a beating, three passive government officials, four years of unjust imprisonment, two weeks tossed around in the sea, one small island, dozens of healings, and a snake bite. And so we came to Rome mistreated, misunderstood, forgotten, lost, left alone, trapped, chained to a guard and marching to his death. And so we came to Rome. Way back in Acts 23, 11, when Jesus first showed up and said, hey, Paul, you're going to Rome? I don't think this is what Paul had in mind. Right? Now, let's make this personal. Think about, consider, what has Jesus promised you? Your role to play, your how in his grand mission, your dream come true with God. What has Jesus promised you? 
How do you think that's going to play out? Really? Because Paul got to Rome, just not the way he wished. Paul got to Rome, but there was no beam me up, Scotty moment. Paul got to Rome, but he limped in bloody and chained. And you too will get to your Rome. But the way you get there might not be what you expect. Sometimes the mission of God is so fun and it's so exciting. And sometimes the mission of God isn't. Sometimes it is flat out hurtful, painful. Sometimes it is filled with delays and detours and disappointments from God himself. So what do we do in those moments? What do you do if you feel like your life has been on a detour or you're about to step into a detour on this mission with God? What do we do in those moments? What can we take away from these six chapters of the book of Acts that can actually help us in our day at this time? Let me give you four takeaways from this story. There's more to them, but let me just highlight four. Number one, ask God to show up where you are before he takes you where you want to be. Ask God to show up right where you are before he takes you where you want to be. There's two different times in this tragic journey of Paul's to Rome when God shows up. And it was so crucial both times. Remember the first time God showed up, Paul was still back in prison in Jerusalem. And that's when God assured him of the final destination. You are going to Rome. God knew what lay ahead for Paul. All the detours, all the delays, the winding road that would seem hopeless at times. So God himself in Jesus Christ personally shows up to give Paul the confidence. You're going to get there. Then God again shows up on that ship at the tail end of a two-week tempest. And he does it this time through an angel. And he reminds Paul, hey, I haven't forgotten the mission. I know what's going on. You're going to get to Rome. Everybody's going to survive. Both times when that happens, it is so crucial that God shows up. Ask God to show up. When God shows up, everything changes, right? When God shows up, everything changes. I want to invite you to invite God to show up right where you are. Before you get to your destination, you need God to show up where you are. You need Jesus to walk into that hospital room and hold your hand and be there with you. You need Jesus to go to your stinky job and sit in the break room with you. You need Jesus to comfort you when the spot on the bed beside you is empty and it's dark and lonely and your spouse died way too soon. Ask God to show up where you are now. And it's okay. Don't feel bad for asking God to show up. He loves to give his attention to us. He loves to give his presence to us. 
And it's hard to believe that because we live in a culture that is attention starved, right? We sort of kind of maybe in a little bit, well, we kind of avoid each other all the time, right? We don't even call each other anymore. We just send a text and wait a few days or weeks before someone texts us back. We send an email expecting no real response because it's going to take forever. We boil communication down to 144 characters instead of real human face-to-face conversation, right? We just kind of get used to and expect people are going to avoid us. I'm guilty of it myself, but it's not so with God. God is different. He delights whenever we ask him to show up. So ask him to show up where you are before he takes you where you want to be. Number two, number two, make the most, make the most of where you are, even though it isn't where you want to be. In the midst of his downward spiral, Paul never forgot who he was or what he was called to do. Just a few examples. Think about this. The second official, Festus, right, the dude with an unfortunate junior high experience, he called this King Agrippa guy in and had Paul share his story again. So it's literally been over two years of Paul sitting in a dungeon, getting nasty, being ignored, being used just to make some money, right? If you could ever be hopeless, you're, that's what, where Paul was at the moment. He comes up to present his case, and he starts sharing the gospel with these guys. He's like, hey, you all need Jesus. You need to repent of your sin. Why don't you come to Christ? And King Agrippa, this high and mighty Roman official, is like, oh, so you would make me a Christian, huh? And Paul's like, actually, yes. Do you want to get saved right now? Here, let's do an altar call, King Agrippa. Just come on right up front. And he's just going for it. And he's like, you know why, King Agrippa? Not just you. I want everybody in the space to get saved right now. You know, anybody want to repent? We can pray right now. So Paul's making the most of his messed up situation by sharing the gospel with whoever happened to be around him at that time. Another example, he's on the boat, right, at the end of the shipwreck. God just told him, yes, you're going to survive. Everybody's going to survive. You're going to get to Rome. And after that, Paul stands up and delivers this, like, halftime pep talk better than Denzel Washington and Remember the Titans. And everybody rallies. You're like, yeah, that's right, Paul. We'll survive. And they fight through it, and they get to the island, and they survive. Or when Paul gets to that island with the weird tribal people, Malta, he gets bit by a viper, and then he goes on, he survives, he gets healed, and then he heals the chief's dad, and then in the name of Jesus Christ, heals, literally it says, everybody who was sick on that island got healed by Jesus through Paul. All of that happened before he got to Rome. All of that happened before he got to where he really wanted to be. Make the most of where you are before you get to where you want to be. A lot of times when we get these detours and delays, these sufferings, we start to ask the question, why? But actually we should be asking the question, what? What do you want me to do in this place? What do you want me to do in this pain, behind these scenes, under this stress, before I get to where I want to be? Number three, what do we do in these detour, delay moments? Number three, don't make it about you. As kind as I can say that, don't make it about you. Sometimes when God reroutes us on his mission, we start to think that it's like we're the point. As though human history rises and falls based on how we're feeling that day. Have you ever been there? Sufferings and setbacks have this way of like making us make it, all of it, about us. Right? It's kind of weird. Nearly two years ago, I stepped out of full-time vocational church work. 
And at that point in time, I had been in full-time paid church work for 13 years. God had been leading through me. I was in growing churches. God was doing awesome stuff, all that. And then all of a sudden, after 13 years, I step out of full-time vocational church work. And I'm like, who am I? Like, what do I even do? I was disoriented, and I knew, well, i got to get a job, like, just to try to put food on the table for my wife and four kids. So I get a job at Qdoba. Qdoba made great burritos, but it, it like, wasn't going to pay for the, like, four kids, right? And so I, I'm, like, trying to run the cash register. That's what they give me, run the cash register. And I have a degree in business management, but I couldn't figure out which fancy little button. It's hard, people. Be nice to the people. Which button do you push to make the little coins spit out and go to those customers? And worse, there's a 16-year-old next to me correcting me for all of my mistakes. Like, half my age, way better at the cash register. I was like, oh, driving me nuts. And I worked for a grocery store where I would take canned green beans and put them on the shelves. And I worked for a book warehouse where, seriously, like, the most complicated decision every day was which top 40 radio song I was going to sing out loud to. I usually picked Bruno Mars and pretend like I had this awesome falsetto. I don't, but I tried, you know? So anyway, while I was making mistakes with the cash register and like memorizing the labels of green beans and singing along to Bruno Mars, while I was not in full-time church work, while I was not being, being paid to be right in the middle of stuff, guess what the mission of God was doing? It was moving along quite nicely without me. It was doing just fine. People were still getting saved. Churches were still growing. And I had this realization. Oh my goodness. For God to accomplish his goals, he doesn't need me right in the middle of them. Oh, you can do this just fine without me, God. It's not about me after all. God was doing awesome without me. I may have been spiraling downward, but God was spiraling upward quite nicely. And when your life doesn't go according to plan, just like mine, just like Paul's, Sometimes it's helpful to remember it's not about you. In fact, God is just as successful, just as glorious, just as sovereign, just as beautiful, just as delightful, just as powerful, whether you get the promotion or the demotion, whether you get the healing or the hurt, whether you get released or sent back to the dungeon for two more years. It's not about us. Last one, number four. Jesus' life was no easier than yours. In some ways, it's oddly comforting, you know? Like, Jesus' life wasn't any better than yours. Like, Jesus' life was no easier than ours. If there's anyone who ever had a grand mission in life, it was Jesus, right? His mission was to seek and save the lost. It was like to Change the world. I mean, Jesus' mission was kind of a big deal, you got to admit. And if there's anybody who suffered through the how, the practicals of his grand mission, it was Jesus. How did Jesus seek and save the lost? Through his sufferings and his death. How did Jesus seek to save and change the world? By giving up his rights, his comfort, his ease, and becoming obedient, taking on the form of a servant, being obedient even to the point of death. That was Jesus' how in his grand mission. City light. 
the leader of our organization, the the captain of our team, the Lord of our lives, the lover of our souls, the senior pastor of our church has endured far more than any one of us can imagine or have experienced ourselves. City Light, we can look to him when we're in the midst of our own detours and our own disappointments. In fact, Jesus died in seeming disappointment. Jesus died on what seemed to be a detour so that when we're in our own detours and our own disappointments, we can look up and find him there, find him to be faithful and near to us when we are in our own detours and our own disappointments. If there was ever something that looked like a disappointment and a detour, it was the cross of Jesus Christ. And if there was ever something that led to great glory and great gain, it was the cross of Jesus Christ. So may we find him in our own little detours and disappointments. City Light, we will get to Rome. You will get to your Rome. But it might not be the way you expect. And when that happens, we will trust our Savior more sweetly. And we will lean into him more deeply. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you. It's such a terrible story, depressing story, that there is so much hope from your son, Jesus Christ, from your presence showing up. And so, Father, I pray now, would you be working in our hearts, not just to hear some sermon, but would you personally be speaking to us, stirring within us, how do we respond to you today? How do we respond to what you're saying and what you're doing in our hearts and what you're saying? And even now with with everybody just bowing and praying, if you would, if you feel like, man, I'm in a detour right now. I'm I'm in a delay or I feel disappointment from God. If that's you, would you just raise your hand? I'm not going to ask you to do anything else, but if that's you, just say, hey, that's me. I'm there. Yeah, quite a few. Father God, we pray for these folks. They feel like they're on a detour, they're out of place, they're being delayed, or they're just flat out disappointed with what you're doing in their lives. Oh God, show up. Show up where they are. They don't have to just figure it out. They don't have to get there. Father, show up where they are. Help them to make the most of their situation, as difficult as it might be, to experience you and share you even where they are. And Father, I pray that they wouldn't even make it about them, that they could lift up their eyes and see Jesus, Jesus' suffering, Jesus' death, and especially Jesus' resurrection. And by not looking at themselves, but instead looking at Christ, they might be healed in their hearts. Father, reassure them, reassure us, they'll get to Rome, even if it's not the easy way, even if it's not the scenic route. Would you move, Holy Spirit, and do that? And church, as you pray with your heads bowed, we're going to take communion in just a minute. And communion is our way. It's an opportunity to remember the worst detour ever, it seemed. The worst disappointment ever, it seemed, when in fact, it was glorious. It was powerful. It was effective. When Jesus Christ gave up his body and shed his blood so that us sinners could be redeemed and brought close to him. Jesus died so that he might be with us in our detours and disappointments. 
come forward and you can receive the bread, which reminds us of his body broken for us, and receive the juice, which reminds us of his blood spilled for us. And let's remember what looked like a disappointment was for his great glory. Father, make it real to us. Let the bread and the juice come alive, not physically, but spiritually and in our hearts. Breathe life into us as we remember, as we experience, as we set our hearts and our eyes in a fresh way on your death and your resurrection. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.